It's good to be with you again this morning, church. Um, I'll tell you, every week that I come to Kerrville, the drive from Abilene gets prettier and prettier. And so this past uh, yesterday when I was driving up, the blue bonnets are quite numerous uh, between here and there. And so it's always neat this time of year to see God changing the seasons and the beauty around us. It's uh, so encouraging, perhaps especially after the winter that we experienced here, which was so unusual for this part of the world. Uh, but it's good to, be, good to be with you again this morning as we continue our conversation about the power of God's love. And that's what we've been talking about over these last couple of weeks together, and we'll continue that today. As I was thinking about this week, I was remembering that it's been about 20 years ago that I was sitting in a doctoral class on the campus of Vanderbilt University. And there were three of us in there, three students with their professor. And we were meeting there every week. And the, the three students that I was with, uh, the two others, we came into the program together. That year, they accepted three students together, and we were the three. And so Scott and Miles and me got to know each other really, really well over the course of the, the time that we were there in Nashville together. We took most of our classes together, and we're sitting there in this professor's office talking about the Protestant Reformation. Doesn't that sound riveting? Three hours, four people talking about Martin Luther and John Calvin. I mean, some of you are falling asleep just, just knowing that that conversation even took place all of those years ago. But I remember distinctly this particular conversation because we met every Monday morning at 8 o'clock. I met for those, those three hours beginning, on, beginning the week together. And as we were wrapping up our conversation that week, I was remembering, and I think Scott and Miles were also remembering, that the very next week was a holiday. It was Martin Luther King Day. And so we were wrapping up our conversation and realizing that we have a little bit of a break next week. You know, we, we can take our time and get through the reading, and this is nice. And as he was wrapping up the conversation, however, Dr. Johnson seemed completely unaware or unconcerned that next week was a holiday. And so as we were wrapping up, he said, and I'll see you again next week, and you'll be reading these things. And, and all three of us, all the students, were thinking the same thing. Who's going to be the brave soul to let him know that next week is a holiday? And so we realized we had at least a couple of options. One of us could be brave enough and we could just tell Dr. Johnson, hey, look, next week is a holiday in case you didn't know. Or we could just arrive anyway and pretend that it didn't happen. And our fear of Dr. Johnson actually made that second option pretty appealing at that moment. But Scott, who was the oldest among us, was following the brave soul, and he kind of dipped his toe into the water eventually and said, um, Dr. Johnson, you, you do know that next Monday, next Monday, a week from today, is a holiday, don't you? Uh, do you still want us to meet with you next week that's the holiday? And I'll never forget that moment. We sat there for a moment, it seemed like an eternity, it was probably just a few, few seconds. Dr. Johnson looked at Scott squarely in the face and he says, Mr. Harris, do you plan to march next week in honor of Dr. King? Scott wasn't going to lie, said, no, sir. Well, then I expect to see the three of you here next Monday morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and we were all there. 
I, I think over the years that I've studied a lot about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy, I think it's extremely appropriate uh, that we honor him every year uh, with a holiday, uh, that Americans are, are asked to remember that very important person and what he did for this country. I think there's probably not a single individual who's done more individually for this cause than he did all of those years ago. And his philosophy of nonviolent resistance was especially powerful. And though not everybody agreed with him then, and certainly not everybody agrees with him today, he advocated a love of people, regardless of skin color. He, he encouraged white people to love African American people. And he, and he encouraged African American people to love white people. That love was at the center of his message. All of those years, and, and those that remember him continue to remember the, the love that was at the center of that message. But you may not know that that was not always his position. There's a story about something that happened earlier in his life that not many people are familiar with. It was a, it was a story that, that dramatically reshaped his life. When he was about six years old, the very best friend they had on this planet was the son of a shop owner, a shop that existed right across the street from the home that he grew up in in Atlanta, Georgia. Now this shop owner and the son, which is Martin Luther King Jr.'s very best friend, both of them were white. And Martin Luther King Jr. and this little boy, they were inseparable. They did everything together. Uh, from the time the sun came up to the sun went down, they were always together, playing together in the streets. And they knew each other really, really well. As the two of them continued to grow, however, they both reached about six years of age and it was time to go to school. And so Martin Luther King went to the black school and his friend went to the white school. And over time they saw less and less of each other until the day where his friend came to him and told him he was no longer allowed to play with him anymore. And it was that night that Martin Luther King's father, Martin Luther King Sr., had the conversation with his very young son for the first time about what racism was about. And King says from that moment forward, he was determined to hate every white person he came across. Now we know that he didn't stay there. There are some things that happened in his life that changed his mind on that. And eventually his message became an extremely inclusive one. In fact, he often talked about something called the beloved community where white people and black people would join hands and they would treat each other as brothers and sisters. So here's my question for you this morning. What happened? <laughs> Why the dramatic change? Why, why the sudden transition in his life? Because it, it, it was a dramatic profound change in his life. And he was asked that question on more than one occasion throughout his life. Why did you change your mind on this? And his answer was very simple. He said, I came to understand that the most powerful force on this planet is the power of love. He said, love has the ability to change people more than anything else. Hating people, he says, will not change them. But loving them will. 
Now, he's not the only person that has learned that lesson over life. I want to remind you of a couple of other people this morning. Many of you who have studied the New Testament do not need any sort of introduction to the apostles Peter and Paul. Uh, Peter was a close companion of Jesus, one of the twelve. Paul was responsible for writing as much of the New Testament as anybody else. They were very, very influential people in the earliest days of the church. And for that reason, they've been continually influential throughout the history of the church. But do you recall that one time they had a run-in with each other? A very pointed disagreement, a very public disagreement. I want to read to you this morning the way that Paul describes that confrontation with, with Peter all of those years ago. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now you may not pick up on this, but in the first century, that was quite an insult. I mean, that was a big deal. Calling him out in the middle of this room, Now, Peter was a Jewish person. He grew up believing, as did most other Jews, that non-Jews were dirty, they were unclean, and they were not part of God's family. It was cut and dry. It was very easy to understand. They were on the outside looking in. It was very, very clear. Now, Jews, on the other hand, had a different perception of themselves. They grew up believing and hearing all the time from those around them that they were God's children. They were God's chosen people. And, and this is important, and no one else was as good as they were. That's what they heard. That's what their parents told them. Their grandparents told them. That's what they heard in synagogue. This was their culture. And so Peter... Even if he knew in his mind that God had opened up the door to the Gentiles, all right? Even if he understood in his mind, and maybe he believed in his heart a little bit, if he knew that God did, in fact, love everyone, Peter just couldn't bring himself to love those those non-chosen people. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I want you to hear what Peter wrote years later, probably toward the end of his life. I want you to hear this dramatic shift that took place in Peter's life. So this time he's writing to a group of Christian people years later, years after that confrontation in Antioch. And listen to what he says. But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And there are a couple of things that you need to know about this text here. First thing is this. When, when Peter writes Gentiles, Gentiles has come to mean something different at this point in the history of the church than it did earlier. As I said earlier, when somebody was a Gentile, they were simply a non-Jewish person. By the time that Peter's writing these words years and years later, Gentile has come to mean something else. It's come to mean anybody who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Somebody who's on the outside of the church. Now this makes sense because these Jewish people had grown up always believing that Gentiles were those people that were outside of the household of faith. And it stands to reason that they would continue to use that word in the same way. And so we see these writings inside the Bible and outside of the Bible of these Jewish Christians using the word Gentile in this way. These are people that don't believe in Jesus anymore. So late in the first century, it's come to have that connotation. The second thing you need to know is this. I want you to notice the mission that Peter has outlined here for the church. It is not enough to simply sit back and receive the love of God. Notice that Peter says it's not good enough to simply revel in the fact that we are God's people. If you were to paraphrase Peter's central argument in this text, it would go something like this. Brothers and sisters, you were shown mercy, so show mercy to others. Brothers and sisters, you were loved, so extend that love to those around you. And though everybody may think you're crazy out there, love them anyway. And then watch what God can do then. Peter drastically, I mean drastically changed his perception of others. Of those that were not like him. He dramatically changed his perception of others because he learned about the power of love. He'd experienced it in his life. He'd watched it around him. He saw former pagan people, former Gentile people, fall in love with God and and suddenly radically change their lives. Begin behaving in ways that, that he never would have imagined a Gentile behaving. He saw people that had not known God fall in love with the God that he had known his entire life. And what's more, he saw Jewish people like Paul and James and John. He saw these Jewish Christians interact with these Gentile people. And he saw the dramatic effect that that had on the church. 
And he watched the church grow and grow and grow. And by the time of the end of Peter's life and moving into the first century and later after his life into the second century, the church came, became dominated by these Gentile people, these non-Jewish people. And, and Peter began to witness this. And he saw a change come over people. He saw the change that can happen through the power of God's love. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, since I've been with you, we've talked a lot about, about God's plan for the world. And our, our world is inundated with conversations about God's plan or God's will. We hear this discussion a lot and, and people are so concerned. They ask different kinds of questions. Where does God want me to work? Who does God want me to marry? What does God want me to have for breakfast? We're so concerned about God's plan. I think some of us mistakenly believe that God has this great desire to micromanage our lives. That He he just wants you to find that certain one path that's out there. It's mysterious to you, but it's your job in life to figure out where this path is. I think it's possible, church, that we may be asking the wrong questions here. I think it's possible that we need to ask questions like this. Can I honor God by working here? Can I honor God by marrying this person? Can I honor God if I eat bacon instead of waffles this morning for breakfast? I think it's possible to honor God in a number of different ways. There's not one path for each of us to find. That's not how God works. God's plan for the world, God's will for your life is no mystery. It's really quite simple. And in fact, God's plan for your life is the same as God's plan for my life. God's plan has always centered on love. That's what it's about from beginning to end. And we talked about this over the last couple of weeks. In the very beginning of the world, God created this perfect world, but it didn't say perfect very long. But as we recall, God did not give up on us at that moment. God initiated a plan, a rescue plan. A plan that would make it possible for us to live with God and commune with God forever. And that plan had a couple of different stages. But it always involved God's ever-reaching love. God initiated that plan by first of all reaching out to an individual, a single individual named Abraham. And we talked about that last week. But the next phase of this is God's love reached even further, extended even further by embracing an entire nation, the nation of Israel. And finally, that love of God is going to extend even further and it's going to reach the entire world through Jesus. That's God's ever-reaching love into the world. This is God's plan. Loving the world further and further and further all of the time. Last week, we talked about God's love reaching Abraham. This week, we talked about the second part of that plan. God's love reaching out to an entire nation, the nation of Israel. But I want, you to, remind, I want to remind you of what Peter has written in the text that we read a while ago. We are a part of that nation now. We are a part of Israel. We are God's chosen people. And he says this another way. We are part of this royal priesthood. And lest you forget, church, priests have a job. 
As a collective body of priests, our job is to love the world. We are here to do God's work, and God's work is extending the reach of His love to the world. That's our vocation in life. Now, you may be a doctor or a teacher. Your vocation in life, really, as a child of God, is to extend the reach of God's love further and further into the world. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this place. You know, I think some of us, even us Gentile people, we have a lot in common with Peter. We were raised with the label God's people. At least where I was raised. I was raised hearing that I was part of God's people. And we have come to believe, and rightfully so, that God loves us very much. And we have come to believe that we are a part of God's family, and we are. But like Peter, sometimes I believe that it's possible for us to fall into the trap of believing that God loves us more than anyone else. And sometimes I think that's a byproduct of experiencing the love of God so deeply and recognizing the power of God's love for us is that we love that so much. And then we have such a deep compelling relationship with God that we think God loves us more than anyone else. I read an article not long ago and the the title of the article was 10 Behavior Patterns of Inwardly Focused Churches. One of the behavior patterns they talk about is described as an attitude of entitlement. It's possible for God's people to feel entitled After all, we we are a part of God's family. After all, God chose us. And there's a danger there of believing that, that we deserve that. And that we are somehow better than those around us. And if we're not careful, we spend so much time dwelling on that that we sometimes lose sight of God's plan. The plan that I just described, the the part about loving the rest of the world. So instead of reaching into the world to extend the love of God, we keep our arms very, very close and we become extremely concerned about our own comfort. Churches that lose sight of God's plan tend to focus quite a bit on themselves. And sometimes they can become entangled in discussions that are so important to them. But the people outside these walls don't care anything about them. And the reality is some of those conversations that we find ourselves entangled in, not only are they not attracting people outside of these walls, they're actually repelling them. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever seen a church that behaves that way? I found a video this week that reminds me of what this church might look like. So I want to ask the the folks up top there to, to play the video and see if this looks familiar to you at all. Passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. 
I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. You know, you know, church, the reason I think that that's so funny is because I think sometimes it hits really close to home. I really do. And it's scary sometimes to think about that. Church, is it possible that this community of faith, Kerrville Church of Christ, is it possible that this community of faith can be different? I found over the years in ministry that sometimes the best thing to do is just to say it. So I'm just going to say it. My prayer, my hope, my strong desire for you, for Kerrville Church of Christ, is that you are not like so many other congregations that I know of that get bogged down in worship wars. I don't know what it looks like here. Uh, places that I've been before, sometimes you hear these conversations taking place within a congregation. I, I love praise teams. Well, I hate praise teams. Well, I think if you use a guitar in worship, you're going to go straight to hell. Well, I think if you don't use a guitar in worship, you're not going to be relevant to the rest of the world. And you can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Do you know what the rest of the world sees when they watch our conversations? you know what they think about these conversations? Uh, let me give you a Who cares? <laughs> and they really begin to wonder, why is it? Are we so inundated with these conversations? These, as I've heard it say, these inner office memos. Is, Jesus, is it the fact that Jesus really did come to this earth and go through all of this stuff and with all this scripture and all of these things that we read about in religion, is it really possible that all of that happened so that we would get this one hour of our week right? Is it possible that there's more than one way to worship God? Is it possible that there are things that we could be discussing and doing that are much more important? Enough is enough. <laughs> These discussions, I believe, are distracting us from the mission that God has laid before us. And I pray and I hope and I have a strong desire that this community, this Kerrville Church of Christ, will not be like so many other congregations that I know about. They get bogged down in discussions about church programs. Children's ministry needs to have more fun activities. Youth ministry better do something to keep my teenager in church. 
If this senior citizen's ministry is not more engaging, well, then I'm out of here. Do you hear, do you hear the language of entitlement? Enough is enough. These kinds of conversations are distracting us from the mission that God has laid before us. And what is that mission? It's stated really, really simply. We are to love as we have been loved. That's it. And why would we engage in a mission like that? Well, don't take my words for it. Listen to how Paul, or rather Peter, describes why we should engage in a mission like this. He says, we are to love as we have been loved because so that you may be seen by those around you, these honorable deeds. And because of that, they will glorify God when He comes to judge the world. All of this, all of this, it's not about you. All of this, it's, it's not about me. All of this, this building, these ministries, these people, this history, this book, all of this is today and always has been about God. Our mission is to use all of these things that God has given to us, all of these blessings that God has bestowed upon us as a vehicle to extend the reach of God's love further and further and further into this world. Church, that's why we exist. And I think maybe every now and then and we need to remind each other of that. So God, we thank you for loving your church. And God, we pray for the opportunity and the courage to love those around us the way that you love us. That is our prayer. This morning, if there's someone here that has never been impacted by the love of God, and you desire to experience the love of God, Know that this church, this congregation here, we want to share that love with you. It is possible that, that you need prayers from this body this morning, that something's happening in your life, that you need somebody to stand beside you and to walk with you and to help you through this difficult moment. And we want to give you an opportunity to have that as well. And it could be that today is the day that you've decided to give your life to Jesus and put on Christ in baptism, become a part of this family become washed and become something new. We would love to help you with that as well. If this body of Christ can help you in any of these ways, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.